Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I didn't want to come, and I don't want to be here. I'm the son of an Atlanta City police officer. Um, my cousin is an Atlanta City police officer, and my other cousin, East Point police officer. And I got a lot of love and respect for police officers down to the original. You might remember Michael Render, or Killer Mike, from a speech that went viral four days after George Floyd's death. Protests in Atlanta were escalating, and so was the damage and violence. The mayor needed help turning the temperature down. It is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. It is time to beat up prosecutors you don't like at the voting booth. It is time to hold mayoral offices accountable, chiefs and deputy chiefs. Atlanta is not perfect, but we're a lot better than we ever were, and we're a lot better than cities are. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. That impromptu eight-minute speech wasn't the first time Killer Mike made waves. He got his start in music and quickly broke out on Outkast Grammy-winning The Whole World in 2001. Player, I grind. My focus is crime. Raw with the rhyme. I'm slick with the slime. My words are diamonds. Dug out of mine. Spit them. Polish. Look how they shine. Glitter. Listen. Now he's one half of the critically acclaimed duo Run the Jewels which the Times called the most politically timely hip-hop act of the day. Killer Mike's lyrics have nuance, just like him. He's a famous rapper. He's also an activist, a family man, an enthusiastic gun owner, and a serial entrepreneur. He's even opening a bank. Borrowing from Walt Whitman, he is large, he contains multitudes, and he happily contradicts himself. Killer Mike is a capitalist who backed Bernie Sanders' socialist campaign. And after he endorsed Stacey Abrams in her run for Georgia governor, Killer Mike welcomed the Republican, Brian Kemp, who many say stole her seat, to get a haircut and a photo op at his barber shop. These days, it feels like everyone is forced to pick sides and to stick to rigidly drawn lanes, but not Killer Mike, which is why I wanted to talk to him. Well, that and our mutual love of X-Men. Okay, let's start off. 
I want to tell you my favorite quote of all the quotes you've said is about X-Men, which is one of my favorite movie series, one of my favorite comics. Um, And you say you may start off with Professor X, but Magneto got a effing point. Um, Can you explain what you mean by that? Because I thought that was... That is not the quote I expected you to pull. Oh, all right. I'm I'm glad you did, just because um, I was introduced to the X-Men by my dad. Mm -hmm. And um, the X-Men, much like Planet of the Apes, gave me a sense of racial and class disparities in the context of a comic book character so it didn't feel real world and white versus black. And what I meant by that quote is we all want harmony and peace and for people to understand and for goodwill and the hope that if I show you, you know, for lack of a better word, I'm more human than not, even though I'm a mutant, you'll have to have sympathy, compassion, and morality where because of Magneto's past, he had understand that humans, uh, much like our cousins, the chimps, were capable of being very awful for reasons that are unknown. Well, it's interesting because he's seen as a villain, but he's really not. And that's not. what it is. His background is Holocaust and he was experimented on. Absolutely. Uh, Magneto was. And of course, that's where he found his powers. Yes. So as I got older, I began to understand and sympathize and empathize with Magneto's side more. Even though as a kid, I was very enthralled by Professor X and his ambitions. I had to understand it in a real world. The brutal reality is that oftentimes the people who have been victimized have to be more aggressive in in not being victimized. And initially you think you're against him, but you're right. Every time he made one of those speeches, I'm like, he's got a point. He has a point. These humans have to go. You know what I mean? (laughs) This is a very true thing. And um, I I think what comics provide is the amazing opportunity for us to take our personal teams out of it. And, and to really see the character of the of human behavior. Right. You know, to me, they're as worthy as any Shakespearean play and, 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 and a lot of holy books because you get that lesson to morality and you get it at such a young age that it's impossible to unthink it or unlearn it. So I see you're a reader, too. <laughs> yes, I am. But you also mentioned Planet of the Apes, which is one of yes. my favorite series. All of them. I've seen all of them 26 times. And, you know, it's same thing with Dr. Zaius when he's saying at the end, be careful for what you find, even though he's the villain He's right. The destruction of the planet by humans created the situation that created Planet of the Apes, even though they were brutal and awful. So it's an interesting way to think of the world. And it made me think a lot about power, like what is power? And so one of the things you do when you talk about politics is you're right on the edge of that. And yet you always return to the positive. Well, I have to. Why? Otherwise, I'm Magneto. Mm -hmm. And I mean that quite in the literal. Um, We have the ability to burn this whole thing down tomorrow. And when I say we, I mean people. People could, war could end tomorrow. Every 18-year-old boy across the globe could not agree, and we could send the leaders of our nations to fight gladiator style in Colosseums. And I guarantee you the oligarchs would end war tomorrow, right? Because it's their blood on the line then. It's not the blood of poor children um, on the line. We as a collective, have not been organized enough or have not done so. So I have to think from the positive, what is the best way that I contribute to the protracted struggle of being someone who pushes people to questions the whys so that they come to the enlightenment of there's a need for an end to war. So I find myself aspiring to be Charles Xavier and and helping people understand the power that they have and controlling that power versus burning the whole thing to the ground because the instinct is always to burn it to the ground. All right, well, let's get into your, your music then because you broke out, you know, as a performer on Outcast. Uh, but the album yes. that put you on the map was the 2012 album 
R.A.P. music, which was yep. less commercial, much more political. There's a song about Ronald Reagan and Iran Contra, which I remember <laughs> very well because I'm super old. The end of the Reagan era. I'm like Lemma 12 old enough to understand the shit that changed forever. They declared the war on drugs, like a war on terror. But what they really did was let the police terrorize whoever. And they would take our drugs and monies as they pick our pockets. I guess that that's the privilege. Talk to me about the shift in the music. Well, rap music was an acronym for Rebellious African mm-hmm. People's Music. So you didn't right. have to be black or African. But it was from, of course, someone who's a descendant of African, but it was people's music. In much the same way people interpret that as black power, but that's all power to the people, to the proletariat. So that record was, I had other political records from my very first record on Columbia Records. I had moments from God in the Building to put the pressure on them, featured Ice Cube. But that record was a consorted effort to put all of that in one place without the influence of a bigger company saying, but you need a dance song. You don't have a crunk song or a trap song. <laughs> Real bad guy shit. <laughs> Living like a villain, never chilling. Yeah, I'm a public enemy because I call rampant and I don't give a fuck about a party in the It was just Michael Rinder pouring his experiences with the help of one producer who later became my rap partner, LP. And it was put together in the imagination of Jason DeMarco. Jason DeMarco gave me an opportunity to produce it and do a record at William Street Records. And the only requirement that we had was you got to call yourself Killer Mike, as you were, not the Mike Bigger moniker, So because we don't care about you being safe. And I want you to make your version of Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted. And I got a chance to do that. And I think that record took off for me because it was the first time as an artist, the audience got to see me in total. Right. Who I was. And that's that. That's me with all the nuances of someone who was politically sophisticated enough to make a Ronald Reagan and yet Southern and ratchet enough to praise his wife on a club about strip clubs. You know what oh, I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course you go with your wife to a strip club. Who, that, or who, I do. Who, no other way who to go. else would you go to a strip club with? I'm always, I'm not going to tell this story, but I go to a strip club to meet internet people and they're always like, don't tell my wife. I'm like, why don't you bring your why wife? Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> okay, we're off on a strip club thing. Oh. I want to get back to your music. So you've called your music the soundtrack to progress, but on your latest album, uh, RTJ4, uh, let's play uh, a, a section from Walking in the Snow. Okay. And usually the lowest scores, the poorest, they look like me. And every day on the evening news, they feed your fear for free. And you so numb, you watch the cops choke out a man like me. Until my voice goes from a shriek to whisper, I can't breathe. This is about Eric Garner, who died after he was put into a police chokehold six years ago. But the same words could apply to the police killing of George Floyd. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I can't I can't talk about that without acknowledging not only Eric, but Erica Garner. And I get chills talking about her because she was his daughter. She kept his legacy and the legacy of justice alive. And she died of what they call a heart attack is a broken heart. She was an amazing an amazing woman. And one day when the battle between citizens and the police ends and police are better regulated and citizens feel safe and not overseen, she will be one of the bricks in the foundation that caused that to happen. So, of course, I wrote that and and it references Eric so he's not forgotten. It ends up being applicable to Floyd. But I bring it straight to your next door to say this is a human being 
that's being affected. So not only are children in cages and stuff and there's more murder porn that you're watching on the television. Now it is to the point where I am here in your living room. You're watching me as the police murder me. And that is simply meant to put the gravity of what we see in the theater of music so that you can listen to it and absorb it. We know that it is easier for the police to kill someone who looks like me in this country. And that is a terrible thing for us to allow, because if we believe in what the Bill of Rights and the United States Constitution has promised us, and if we understand that the history of policing growing out of slave catching and things of that nature, then we should be compelled as Americans with the higher ideal to, to, to change that relationship. So why is that? You know, you could have written those lyrics now yes. and before. Yes. So what is progress to you? Is there actually progress? Because you talk about the soundtrack of progress. Yeah, it's it's a protracted struggle. There is progress. You know, Eugene Debs ran for president from prison in the early 1900s. Bernie Sanders actually stood a shot four years ago and, and, and a few months ago. It's 100 years of progress, unfortunately, that it took, but that is progress. But when you're writing a lyric that then just continues to be accurate year after yeah. year after year. How does that feel? Well, it, it, it's hurtful. But I mean, it was true in my grandfather's time. But you get to feel like this is the way it is because it is. Right. Not the way it should be, not the way it has to be. But I would argue that part of that is less about how I feel because you're going to feel shitty as a woman if you keep getting shitted on. And we know that the protracted struggle of women's suffrage, women's rights, and now equal, you know, equal rights and beyond, we know that that's been over 100 years. There was a time the abolitionist movement was married with the women's suffrage movement, and it split, you know, and, and, right. and much of us know why. So it's we could have faster progress if we all attacked our common masters together and said, I'm not going to accept this unless everyone gets this. But we don't. What are we not doing to progress us faster? Because we don't have to stay here. One of the things you said in this lyric is every day on the evening, they feed you fear, fear for free. free. That's a real condemnation of the media. Well, what we, we do, we have a want. What am I what am I wanting? Why do I keep going to the bloodiest of headlines? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why don't I read two different newspapers for two different perspectives? Why do I simply find something that makes me comfortable in my opinion and belief and leaning to that? And why am I not demanding better news stories of my media. We seem to enjoy watching or talking about or discussing the worst more than we do the better. Except that these videos did create protests that did lead to shock and horror. Absolutely. That wouldn't, a lot of social media actually is where that happened. So how do you balance the two? Because you've got to see these things. Well, that's not, yeah, the, the, the opening of Emmett Till's casket is a version of that. Yes. That's not what I'm protesting. What I'm protesting is the 363 days where they show you black men as evil, villainous creatures that make half of your work office that day say, well, he should have just complied. That's the feed you fear for free. That's the fear. The act of seeing someone die on camera is a brutal act to see, right? But it is a necessary act, just like the pictures of lynchings were necessary, just like the opening of Emmett Till's coffin. But the fear that I'm talking about, you're being fed for free, is the fear that white people are fed to be afraid of everything non-white, non-Western, and non-American. Right. And that fear, and, and I'm not saying this in combination of judgment, but scared white people scare me because violence comes soon after. 
You know, when, when those women pick up their phones and say, I'm going to call the cops on you, they're using the power and privilege of being a white woman in that moment in the park. And the power of the state will be used to potentially Let's murder Let's talk you. about that. So you grew up in the west side of Atlanta, a city you've called yes. Fortress for Black America. Um, let's talk a little bit about police and, and the city itself, because you meant you went viral in a very powerful speech recently with protests breaking out there over George Floyd. Rioters were vandalizing part of the cities. There were peaceful protests going on and you stood up and you peeled for calm. I was mad. I didn't want to be there. Yeah, I was. I, my friend made me come. You know, T.I. Is, is a very dear friend of mine. He's a business partner. Mm-hmm. And we are from the like the same neighborhood. There's a uh, we have a business called Bankhead Seafood. And I was taking other rappers around, taking them food. I was playing salesman and um, drinking champagne and eating fish. And the next thing you know, Tip says, you know, the mayor wants us to come down. And after about an hour of us arguing um, back and forth, you don't let your friend go and do stuff by themselves. Why didn't you want to go? You were angry or? I was angry. So why didn't you want to go? Because I watched a man of 200 and some odd pounds put his knee on the neck of a man for eight minutes and kill him. And, you know, as a person who hunt and fishes, I wouldn't allow a deer, you know, that I had shot to spend eight minutes dying. You know, there's a there's a humanity um, in ending the suffering um, that that the cop didn't have. So I wanted everything to burn a part of me. Did. I was very angry. It very it was more Magneto than not. And with that said, my father had been a former police officer. My cousins are on the force and are good police officers. And as we walked in police headquarters, I saw a lot of good men and women of color. We have a large black police force, you know, started from those first eight black cops in Atlanta. And those people are people I know from the community and not just in a police uniform. I know they've done good in the community. I've, I've seen the product of their work. And um, I knew that my community, although angry and bubbling over, I knew that we have been a safe haven for black organization and organizational power here. And I knew that if we allowed ourselves to fall into the hopelessness and despair of burning our city to the ground, black America may not have that in the same way. And that scared me because for the first time in my life, I saw us angry enough to be chaotic enough to not organize, to simply watch it burn. And the problem with that is if you're already on the low rung of the totem pole and everything goes to to chaos, how do you feed, clothe, and shelter the people that you're fighting for? Right. How do you make sure they have the base bare minimal necessities? How do you make sure that beans and bread are going to be provided? How do we make sure that water gets to? And, you know, I heard people say, well, he was standing up to defend businesses. Well, a week after that brother Rashad was killed at that Wendy's, the, the, the mother of his children and his wife were given a car. The people who gave him the car did not work for the city. It was not city money. It was not state money. It was private money. And one was Pinky, who owns a slutty vegan, a Clark Atlanta University graduate, and the other owned Big Dave's Cheesesteak. His business was nearly destroyed. They smashed out his windows. He spent what it took to finish his windows. He gave money to other businesses that had suffered. And then within a week, he didn't hold anger. He didn't hold rage. He understood why the riots happened. But within a week, he was given a car to the family of a man who had been robbed of an opportunity to raise his children. But you've, you've 
gone there. You've, you've, I'm not sure if you've supported a burning down police precincts in Minneapolis, for example, when you said what, uh, what was radical was not that they burned targets, they burned down police stations. That's Absolutely. how the governments know we're fed up with this. How do you Absolutely. reconcile those things? I'm not calling for violence against the police as individuals, as human beings, as working men and women with families. It's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is saying that by any means necessary, defend yourself against murder from the state. And when the proletariat is fed up, The proletariat must, in protest, let the state know we are fed up. Burning a police building or a government building at all is a much more effective means as a proletariat of letting the people who you entrust with your money and to lead you is a much more effective means of letting them know I'm fed the fuck up than burning a retail outlet. That's simple. You paid for the buildings you burnt up. Your tax dollars paid for them. So what you're saying now is, We paid for this. We're not satisfied with the outcome. We are letting you know, much in the same way the Boston Tea Party did, much in the same way of even those who sympathize with the Confederacy, the Confederacy attempted to do. That's the American way. The American way is to say, I'm fed up. I'm going to burn some shit down so you know I'm serious. In a capitalistic system, that's what you do. When you let the government know that we pay for the buildings, we pay your salary, we've had enough of this, it seems that measures get taken into consideration a lot faster. And the progress that could have taken 100 years all of a sudden starts to take 10 months. It also creates a backlash and an ability for, say, the Trump administration to make ads about that and portray things as anarchy in the cities. It's not your preferred method of change. No, no, it's not. It's not my preferred. And I'm not saying to do it. I just say, if I see it done, you know, old people in the South got to say, you ain't wrong. <laughs> you know, they say they ain't saying I agree with it, but my you ain't wrong. My grandmother said that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where I can't help that Trump is a marketing master. Mm-hmm. But I can say, remember why you did it and take that into the booth. As vigilant as you were about seeing The government understand your anger. Take the same vigilance into bringing 10 people to the polls with you and vote down ticket. Because as as effective or ineffective as you think any president is, your city council person, your county commissioner, your local judge and prosecutor, your local sheriff have a much bigger effect on your life on a day to day basis. And we need you to be politically organized and nuanced enough to attack them. If you hate Trump policy, make sure it doesn't get to your municipality. Right. I see that. So you've talked about the importance also of having a podium, and you seem to think a lot about your power and how to use it. You you use the word a lot when you're a lot of your, your speeches, including giving voice to the powerless. So before I take a podium, I seek the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, and the experience even from organizations that are working locally that people should pay attention to, I believe, nationally. The Gary Mm -hmm. Davis um, Next Level Boys Academy is an academy that provides an alternative to long prison sentences for boys who made a mistake. You may have a nephew who makes a stupid mistake. He sees a stupid thing on a movie. He decides he's going to take a gun and do something stupid like rob a family dollar, right? Um... The court may want to give your nephew 27 years. Gary says, no, this kid has dealt with some trauma. This kid has not had direction. Um, let's, we think that two years with us is a better alternative, 27 years of incarceration. His, his, his academy is turning boys' life around. And 
if it were not for Fonnie Willis, who's the new Fulton County District Attorney, who's a progressive-minded district attorney, wants to find restoration versus imprisonment, if it wasn't for her pushing this a few years ago, it never would have been set up. So when it came time to help her get elected, it made sense to help her get elected. I want to give voice and podium to that. So that's why I big up Gary. You know, when you matter, look at racial justice now, a lot of times racial justice becomes a, a beige word. A beige. It, it, yeah, it becomes beige. beige. It gets watered down. Racial justice right. now specifically deals with racial justice from a black perspective. And that's very needed in this time because black people have grievances that are nuanced to us that other groups may not understand. Talk about that, because five years ago, you said on Colbert that white people discovering just how bad it is for black people in America are more blind than you thought. And George Floyd um, seems to have broken through to white people. Do you think you're seeing a shift? I hope I'm seeing a shift because Americans as a people, they're tired of the fuck shit. Racism gets in the way of us all. Racism enforced by the state enslaves us all. Because if it can happen to George Floyd, it can happen to someone bajer than him next. The state is not an empire meant to rule over you. And a lot of times in our understanding of, of what government is and what this republic is, we lose sight of that. that. That this is a collective of individuals that should have equal say, equal play, equal push in matters of the state, and we're not. We're quickly giving our power over to the state. Absolutely. I grew up in an all-Black enclave, in a city that is virtually all-Black, and I never had to worry about white people. I didn't worry about what they thought of me. I didn't worry about what they thought about my grandparents' version of Christianity. My stores weren't owned by white people as we went to a big department store. The gas station was owned by a Black woman. My school was named for Frederick Douglass. Our rivals were Benjamin E. Mays. So my entire world was engulfed in blackness. So all my heroes and villains were black. I got a chance to understand that it is the character of someone. It isn't just the color of someone. So I understand a white kid that may be from Illinois or Iowa or upstate Michigan and New York. that may have never had any, you know, with black people at all. Not understanding. But what I wish to invite is the ability to say why and then to find understanding. Now, there are, other, there are other people that have simply been hypnotized by the news or are comfortable in their own opinion or have been told they're like that because it's like that. They understand, and that's a willful ignorance. They've gotten an image. Exactly. And that image, that image makes them feel better, and they never have to challenge themselves, right? It's, it's, it makes you feel better to say, well, those people are just like that. Because then you never have to challenge the fact that teachers in Georgia— who taught schools, but schools become test-taking centers and were forced into changing tests. They went to prison. Mothers in that California who are white and of means lied, tricked the college system into getting their kids in, and they get to choose the prison they go to for two weeks. Right. That's a hell of an insult. You have to say to yourself, have I got some chances that I know I wouldn't have gotten? Yeah. Yeah. Have you walked down the street with a sack of weed in your pocket and knew you weren't going to get searched? Absolutely. You have. Yeah. So so what, what we have to what we have to do is make it not less comfortable for white people, because I think that's the interpretation of everything. I don't want stop and frisk for any American, but I definitely don't want it in Harlem only. More with Killer Mike in a moment.
This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England. Sandwich is a city in England. Reading is a city in England. And I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. You quote a lot of MLK. It's so laced through with Malcolm X, who I don't think people have always set them up as different. Talk about them, because you also, you use pieces of Malcolm X speeches. It's interesting to listen to you talk right now. I have been influenced by both. I have been influenced by King. I've been influenced by X. Mm -hmm. People tend to see them as the antithesis of one another, and they are not. Um, and, and and they died much more alike than not. Malcolm died um, after, after having traveled the world, and in particular Kenya, and organizing with Pinto, who was assassinated three days after him, who was an Indian and Kenyan by birth, but was an organizer there to end a corrupt government and give power back to the people. Malcolm had a much bigger view globally, but in understanding that it wasn't just Black versus the masters of power race, that it really was the proletariat, which King understood in matters of shutting down the war machine. So they died, both of them, more similar than different. And I have been influenced equally by both. So when you're talking about this, this idea of power. We're talking about politics. So let's talk about politics. You had an endorsement of Bernie Sanders, who I think talks a lot about this concept of the larger picture. What drew you to Bernie Sanders? Um, Sanders was offering everything that everyone has always said they would want or would make us better or more equitable society. And what drew me to him was his honesty and in, in, in what he wanted to do. You know, he told me one time we were talking, he was like, you're going to be a billionaire and I'm going to tax the shit out of you too. <laughs> and, I, and, and I giggled because, you know, I was like, you're right, I am. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and here I am supporting you. How close are you I'm not, so far? I'm not very close. All right, okay. I'm, all right, very, okay. I'm what we call in the South Negro rich. Okay. <laughs> so, so I still live very conservatively. If I can buy a million dollar house, my house costs a quarter million dollars. If I can buy a hundred thousand dollar car, I don't buy it until I've saved up a hundred thousand dollars. I don't buy thing, you know. I don't. My wife is very frugal. So okay. <laughs> In two thousand sixteen, you said voting for Trump or Hillary Clinton, you're voting for the same thing. What What did you mean by that? Do you still stand by it? And does the same thing apply right now with Joe Biden? I think they're oligarchs. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. Explain that. 
Oligarchs are a class of people who rule over you, um, who are going to give their kids jobs. They're going to intermarry. They're going to protect their class. And you're going to be a class that they pivot to every two to four years to get their vote. And you will constantly be um, used by them um, as cheerleaders for them to profit themselves and their close circles first. So you don't see a difference between Biden and Trump at this point? Their difference is, I don't know if the differences make a huge um, difference to my community. You know, I would ask the average non-Black Republican, because there are lots of Black Republicans, I would say, why do you not champion the platinum package that Trump put together? Mm -hmm. And if you can't give me a viable answer, you have to go home and ask yourself why. Why don't I want a community of people to get 3 million jobs? Why don't I want a community of people to get 500,000 new businesses? And why don't I want a community of people to get uh, 500 billion? Because I know if this community grows, I know that the greater community grows. So you're going to have to say to yourself, why? And on the Democratic side, I would say to myself, in a time where my arch nemesis has dropped a plan that has some things in it that make a hell of a lot of sense, why am I not talking about that versus saying he didn't denounce the Proud Boys? And what is it about me that my own ego gets in the way of saying, what could I co-opt from that plan? So you always say that. You always say, show what's in it for Black people. Um, yes. Let me give you some for Joe Biden, for example, versus Trump. And you can, I can do the same for Trump, the crime bill and things like that. Joe Biden could save Obamacare, point in attorney general who doesn't pursue mandatory minimums, start using federal funding to push through police reforms, increase school funding. What else do you want from the Democrats? Joe Biden could apologize for the 1994 crime bill. Yeah, I think that that would do huge. And this is me saying this is what I want to see bow to me. Joe, this is me talking, getting my car washed yesterday and a young woman saying, Michael, I'm just conflicted about who I want to vote for, you know? And she's like, my daughter's age, she's like, oh, just to be honest with you, like, I'm angry that older people in our community keep telling me to vote for Joe Biden. And with tears now, she said, I lost my dad for 30 years. And so, you know, you got to think about it. She's no more than 33 <laughs> to prison. It decimated the community. Male influence left with prison sentences. Right. You know, when people say, well, they were selling drugs. Well, some of the drugs was just marijuana. I'm going to tell y'all, everybody in the 70s and 80s did cocaine. You know, and, and to be and, and I dare us be a country that celebrates moonshining and, and bootlegging and not celebrate the cavalier attitudes of drug dealers in the 80s and 90s, because it's the same motive. The same motive was making money. The same motive was allowing people a pleasure. Alcoholism and alcohol and addiction to sugars has killed far more people. And yet our community was decimated. So when you say those things that Biden has are going to help. All right. I got you. I, I hear that. I've been hearing that for 20 years of my political engagement. I've been hearing those exact same things, and very little, if anything, has happened. I would also challenge the Democratic Party to say, why is it more important to keep Obamacare than it is to do free health care? My thing is, why do I keep settling for the top of a building when I say I'm shooting for the stars? And that doesn't say vote for Trump over him. But that does say it becomes very provocative. Trump understands that if a black American economy somehow grow stronger. I get to keep political power. My party gets to get political power. This community gets an injection of funds, and they're going to spend those funds not only within their community, in the greater community. So do I think he likes black people? I don't care. Will his plan help black people? I don't know. 
Does he have some provocative things in there that interests me a little more than the bland stuff I've been hearing out of the Democrats? Absolutely. But I don't want to go vote for Trump. I want the Democrats right. to step so up to say. you don't care. I want you to say that again. You don't care. I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I have to assume that a part of whoever's talking to me has the self-interest of their community at hand. So what's in it for me? And I, I can't care what you think about me. I care what your policy does but for me. Is there any, there are policy differences. Would an apology be enough? You want active things from the Democrats that show like full yeah, health care. I, I think Biden has a start. And I told Kamala, I told, I told Senator Harris, it's the same thing. I think that what's one of the biggest things you could do. You could start with the, hey, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. I got this wrong. Because if not, if you don't do that, you're perceived as arrogant. Right. So something you did that upset some liberals, you met with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, uh, a yeah. pro-Trump Republican uh, yeah. who was accused of stealing the election from Stacey Abrams, who yeah. I think you supported. I did support Stacey. People said you legitimized him by giving him a photo op, getting a haircut at yeah. the barbershop. Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us why you did that. Well, you can't, you cannot legitimize a governor. The governor is the governor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't say, well, I don't, you're not my governor. I, I, you're my governor. I have to pay my taxes. Um, my grandmother did not like every politician, but my grandmother engaged with every politician. She engaged with her mayor. She engaged with her city council. She engaged with her county commissioners. But she engaged with her neighborhood associations. It was her duty, and she taught me it was my duty. My grandmother marched me into a black bank at about five years old. She opened up a banking account for me. My grandmother walked me into the mayor's office meetings with her and other meetings because she thought it was imperative that I understood from a very young child how to control your economics and how to control your community, right? So when you talk about meeting with the governor, people see me as singing and dance, and then I sing and dance. But I won't allow myself to be belittled as simply that. I'm a 30-year advocate and activist in my community, and right now, currently, I'm half co-owner of the Swag Shop franchise. I'm a third owner in Bankhead Seafood, and I'd be damned if I'm not going to sit with the governor of my state and give my perspective from a regular citizen and voter, from a small business owner, I'd be crazy not to. You'd be insane not to. So you have barbershops, yes. millions of dollars worth of property across Atlanta, and now you want to start a community bank, Greenwood. Yes. It's funny that you're starting a financial institution because your fa- my favorite song of yours lately and the video of the of the single Ooh La La, I've watched about 20 times. <laughs> Oh, dirty bastard, go and get y'all. Shimmy, shimmy, y'all. Got Simmy in the Hemi, go and gimme, gimme, y'all. Pugilistic, my linguistics, RJ Ruder damage, y'all. And I rap it, pornographic, be set up the camera. It's sort of got this anti capitalist anthem. You're burning money. Well, you're burning credit if, cards. You're burning piles of cash. How do you well, balance? Again, we're back to this balancing because, two sides. That you're enjoying burning money and, and really well, burning it. Was that real money? That was yeah, no, that wasn't real money. It, it was, some of it was See, real. That I, been I got a little too happy. Boss, if you really <laughs> burn real money. Um, well, I, I mean, we couldn't burn that much real money. Right. You know, we we just got famous as a band. But <laughs> so, how do you balance? You smashing things up and working within the system. Yeah. Well, enough of the proletariat hasn't said enough. Mm-hmm. So the necessity of participating in commerce is what brought me here. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a capitalist in that I, I constantly look for the lowest possible wages and means in order to capitalize the most. But I'm a capitalist in that I understand that my goods and services are worth something in the market. And if I bring a better goods and service to the market, people will be willing to spend a dollar with me. And because of that, I'm able to hire black laborers. I'm able to hire black tradesmen and artists. Which gives you power. Which gives me power. Absolutely. Okay. For those who don't know, explain why it's called Greenwood. 
that oftentimes people hear about the Tulsa riots, which makes black people feel incredibly victimized a lot of times because it was a horrible event. It makes white people feel incredibly guilty um, because it was a horrible event. I want people to take the victimization and guilt out of it. And I want to get to pre-riots Greenwood. Greenwood, as America was expanding west, was an amazing community of freed black people who got an opportunity to simply participate in the promise of America. They got a chance to set up their own communities, to create commerce, education, and religious facilities, and it thrived, it thrived, it thrived. It thrived until racism and hatred and envy ended it. And because it ended, that community never fully recovered. But the potential is not only in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The potential was in Harlem. The potential was in Inglewood. It lives right in Atlanta on Auburn Avenue and Edgewood Avenue. It has lived here for over 100 years. So naming it the banking institution Greenwood needed to remind people that in front of the trauma and past the trauma, Greenwood has to stay in spirit and in philosophy a real thing. And the way you do that, it's like Dr. Claude Anderson said, you start to organize your dollars. If we can take banking as they take more brick and mortar locations out of black communities and just out of communities, period, there's going to be a need for banking right there in your hand. Now you have an alternative that's for black and brown people, not only to be depositors, but also to be capital lenders, too. Right. So what is this? Is it because community banking is a tough business and most of it is loans it to is. commercial uh, real estate yeah. and things like that. So what is this if it's a really a what is it on the very base yeah. level for the average yeah. Atlantan? is an alternative to check cashing places and an alternative to predatory bankings. And the next level after that is for people who are small business owners, medium business owners, or people who may not be in traditional businesses like tech and things to have a bank that's willing to walk or risk it with you. So they're going to be capital lenders as well. And what we grow into, you know, is, 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 you know, only the imagination can conceive of. But I'd like to see us grow into one of the more competitive banks in the market as banking goes more into people's hands and more poor people are less check cashing places and more of our bank right here in my hand. And I hope to see it like it's in cities of Atlanta where you can find over 50 black women owned restaurants and bars and services or the, the black sports and athletes class turn into a business class. What I hope to see is that the, the capital partners, the lenders are more more a Greenwood and less of the banks that have refused but, you know, they us have, 21% they have of the time. They have huge scale that allows them to, to charge better rates, to be to be more yeah. competitive. You may get the worst loans. You may get the more difficult ones. How do you make money doing this? Well, I, I don't have, I don't, yeah, that, that, I, that, you asked some of the same questions I asked is we've had to ask for loans. Some we've gotten, some we've been, some we have been, you know, refused for. But I think that more than having all the answers now, mm -hmm. what I have to say is that we have something in the market that finally makes it available for poor people to bank. And I believe that the unbanked, as they as they bank and as they become more financially literate, they become better banking customers. They become home So loan. literacy is an important part of this. Literacy is definitely an important part. And, and beyond that, I think that the unbanked, go from, and, and once banked and once understanding financial literacy, they go from renters to buyers. Mm -hmm. Buyers stabilize neighborhoods that are, that, are, that are in descent. Buyers in a true tax base brings better schools. Better schools and stable neighborhoods bring in business and innovation in a different way. So, you know, the sky's the limit. My grandmother moved to Atlanta in 1952. By 1980-something, she had paid off 
by 1990-something, we were graduating high school, going into college, and my children have a much more stable life because of the sacrifice that my grandmother mother made. You know, her parents hid money in, in, in coffee cans under the bed. My grandmother banked Black National and kept some money in the coffee cans. Are you going to put your money in this bank? Absolutely, I am. And, and what seed funding? Are you putting in money yourself into the creations? This is a startup, correct? This is a startup. Yeah, I, I, brought, I brought the equity of celebrity and, 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 a, and a minimal amount. So why banks? Because banking is a highly regulated business. And the government is yeah. always looking over your shoulder, make sure you're not extending credit with too much risk. There's all kinds of rules going yeah. on. If you really wanted to incubate Black-owned businesses and literacy and, and organization, why not pursue a venture fund? No, I, I mean, I'm getting educated. Mm-hmm. So, like, part of this is going to be me calling you in a couple of days, like, educate me on the I'd venture fund. This to. is what I've looked up. Yeah. I, I, and, I, and I'm really going to make that call. Any idiot can open a venture fund. That's what I would tell so, you. They are, you. Have you met some of them? No, I've, venture I've, capitalists? You need a pair of khaki pants, though. You need to get... I do have a pair of... I, th- shouts out to Ralph Lauren for the shirts and khaki pants. I want to say that I am... Um, a learned man because I understand that I don't know anything and I'm always in the process of learning. Just like I learned about the town of Greenwood, just like I learned about black banking and the importance of, as I learn, much like I do with social issues, the stuff that I vet out that I see as having some value, I try my best to bring to the greater audience, which is why I'm bringing people, you know, Greenwood, because I want to help us in every way we can. I want to die knowing that my grandchildren are better off for my hard work. But that will be a shame if I don't make sure that my community is not better off for my hard work. All right. Thank you so much, Killer Mike. We really appreciate it. Love and respect. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Adam Teicholtz and Paula Schumann. With music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Binyamin Applebaum, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get a new episode of Sway delivered to you with an ooh-la-la flow, I am the worst rapper ever, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcast, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. We release every Monday and Thursday. 